Moses has now done all his review on the east side of the Jordan River, and it's his last month of his life, and he's expounding and explaining God's law to the next generation that's going to go into the promised land. And he's done all the review, now he just gets into it. So essentially tonight we begin this lengthy sermon, if you will, of great insight. We're not just talking about the law, but explaining the law in further detail. God's law, which is beautiful, just, true, and noble, and all those wonderful things. So in chapter 5, verse 1, we pick it up tonight where it says this. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Oreb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is Moses' introduction going to the Ten Commandments. And it's also a review of how God redeemed them out of Egypt. So in these first six verses, the first five is Moses laying the foundation. But then verse six is really the Lord reminding the people what he had done for them. And it's very appropriate on Holy Week, Passion Week, with moving toward Good Friday and Easter this weekend what we see here, because we know when we come to the Old Testament, and particularly the Mosaic Covenant, where God made the covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave them the Ten Commandments around 1500 B.C., that this covenant was God's communication with humanity for 1500 years through this people. And he gave them the prophets, he gave them the law, and he was paving the way for his son Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our hope and justification which we were just singing about there and all those wonderful hymns that we were singing. And in doing so, in this Mosaic Covenant, of course, we're told that these things are shadows of things to come. And I find it very interesting looking at this text tonight that this is a shadow of things to come. And we read, look at these words that pop out to us in these first five verses. Covenant and mediator. That God made a covenant and there was a mediator, and Moses is, in fact, the mediator, and the covenant was with Israel, and that God was their deliverer. So we look here, it says in verse 2, to be careful to observe them, the Lord our God made a covenant with us, and the Lord did not make a covenant with our fathers, but with us. So there's, there's the fullness of it. And Moses said, and I stood between the Lord and you at that time, verse 5, to declare to you, the word of the Lord. And then we're told that God said to them, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So tonight it's appropriate to talk about Jesus being our mediator. Moses was a good mediator. I mean, Mount Sinai was in smoke and it was very reverent and God is holy and man is sinful and without Jesus fulfilling the fullness of all these promises, we cannot approach God. But Moses is a mediator and really a type of Christ and a foreshadow of what Christ would do. We're told in the Gospel of John that the law of God came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, what Moses did, standing between holy God on Mount Sinai and sinful nation 
at the base of Mount Sinai, what he did for them in that covenant, Jesus does for all the world in the new covenant, which is the everlasting covenant. Isn't that wonderful to think about tonight? That Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And we're told that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's what 1 Timothy tells us. And so we have a mediator. Sometimes you really need a mediator. Like you're trying to get a job and like someone knows the, the boss. So they're going to come talk to the boss and, you know, get you the, the hookup or the connection. It's a mediator. Or you have a conflict and it's more like an arbitrator. But sometimes you have an arbitrator who's really mediating something and trying to bring people together. Governments do this all the time in resolution of conflicts and so on and so forth. But this is the mediator between God and man. And in this case, it was Moses an imperfect man, a great man, one of the greatest men that ever lived, but he's imperfect. But he stood between them. He was the mediator. But Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. There's no other mediator. Isn't it wonderful to know when you woke up this morning that Christ is everything, that Jesus is everything, and there's no other mediator to come, that we have everything we need in Jesus. We're totally complete in Christ. There's not something else to wait for, but when we come to Jesus... We have access. We're told in Hebrews that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He is the mediator that's superior to Moses being a mediator, and he's the true mediator, and there's no other mediator because Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the Son of Man. He has both titles attributed to him, and he's God and man. He's deity and humanity, which, of course, is the miracle and the amazing element of the virgin birth, his sinless life. Moses, we know, was a sinful man. We've seen in recent chapters, like, well, on your account, I can't go to the promised land because I struck the rock twice. We know that Moses was a great man. He was the most humble man, but Moses was not free from sin. Jesus is our mediator who's free from sin. So even as Moses stood this day and began to declare to them these things as a mediator to them in their covenant, think of Jesus on that last night when he spoke all those truths in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, where he's ex- just explaining all these things, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit, asking my name and the Father will give you. Like he's the mediator of a better covenant. And even on that same night, he was betrayed when they were celebrating Passover, which was the symbolism of this covenant for Israel, he takes the bread and cup and he says, take this cup, the cup of the, what? New covenant, which is through my blood, which is shed for all. And then we're told in Hebrews that the new covenant is the everlasting covenant. So again, there's no additional covenants. Christ came. So this is the shadow here on the east side of the Jordan River around 1500 BC with Moses. This is a type of Jesus, a mediator. It's a covenant, but not the everlasting covenant. But it's God communicating with humanity. But in the end, Jesus came, and the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So that's, you look at this and we remind that tonight, that Jesus brings a better covenant. And as God had delivered Israel from Egypt, the bondage of Pharaoh, their slavery, and the land of Egypt, we're told in verse 6, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And we are told, and we've studied this with Exodus and other parts of going through the Pentateuch the last few years, is that Egypt is a type of the world. Slavery in Egypt is a type of our slavery to sin. And Pharaoh is really, truly a type of the devil who held us in bondage. And so tonight we can just celebrate for a moment and reflect, even as Scott was praying and leading us in prayer about 
not taking for granted the gospel and not being desensitized to the beauty and the glory of God's grace, but even as God had his meteor Moses, even as God made his covenant at Oreb, which he did with Israel, and even as God provided deliverance for them from the house of bondage and from the land of Egypt, much more so has God through his son, Jesus Christ, provided our deliverance from the bondage of sin, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he is the, a greater mediator because we can come boldly to the throne of grace. They didn't want to go near the mountain, but we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. And our covenant is, is established and strengthened and maintained through his blood in our place. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we celebrated for Good Friday. It's good to think about that right now. That's what we're celebrating. Truly, humanity, we are saved by grace. Pastor Chuck's been on the radio. Well, he's always on the radio on K-Way, but he's going through Romans, if you've heard him this week, and just expounding on grace, Romans 7 and 8. It's just so beautiful to be reminded of how we truly are saved by grace. And this is beautiful right here, what we're reading in the context here historically. But it's a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And we celebrate this week as the church of Jesus Christ, our fullness in Christ. Praise the Lord. When you wake up on Good Friday, man, just thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. Just praise the Lord that we're not groping in the dark to find our way for salvation. We're not groping in the dark to find purpose in life. And we're not groping in the dark to wonder what our destiny is. Through Jesus Christ and what he's done and what we celebrate this Friday on Good Friday, we have a hope that's an anchor to the soul and its absolute sureness based upon who he is, what he's done, where he's at, what he's promised to do, and what he's going to do. Now, as we read on in the context of the nation of Israel here in this text, we now get to the Ten Commandments. And so we pick it up in verse 7. So the Lord delivered them out of their house of bondage, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. And we read this, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your female servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire and the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Man, the Ten Commandments is beautiful, isn't it? It's just beautiful and amazing. And, and there's a simplicity to it. Less truly is more. 
you know, the, the Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ had taken just one of the commandments, the, the Sabbath, and made 600 plus commandments from it. Man complicates things. God simplifies things. And the Ten Commandments is so beautiful. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago on a prelude to all this, that the Ten Commandments are beautiful and Jesus is beautiful because he's a perfect man and he kept the Ten Commandments. What makes Jesus so beautiful as a human being, as a son of God, deity, and humanity, is he did exactly this. What we just read, he did it perfectly. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, don't think I came to counsel the law, the law of God, but I came to fulfill it. And again, when he was crucified, going back to Good Friday, Pilate declared his innocence. The Roman centurion declared his innocence. His innocence was declared all along. There is no guile in him. He was crucified for claiming to be exactly who he is, God. He's the son of God, Jesus Christ. There's a perfect sinless man that died on the cross for our sins. Now, we could die on the cross for our sins because we have sins and we deserve to die on the cross for our sins for the wages of sin is death, right? When we read the Ten Commandments, you go like, wow, that's, man, that's the way to live. That, I mean, you do this, you're going to be blessed as a single person. You do this, you're going to be blessed in your marriage. You do this, you're going to be blessed in your business. You do this in your community, your community is going to be blessed. You do this in your nation, your nation's going to be blessed. To the degree that you can align this way, you're going to be blessed. Now, of course, we know that we don't save ourselves through keeping the Ten Commandments. As we are reminded yet again, the New Testament tells us that if we could save ourselves, then Jesus Christ didn't need to die on the cross, but that no one can save themselves is evident and that Christ came and died on the cross for us. Galatians chapter 2 makes that clear. But nonetheless, the Ten Commandments are beautiful. They're a beautiful standard of absolute truth for the human race from the dawn of creation until the trumpet sounds for the church. And though we can't be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were fulfilled by Jesus Christ for righteousness. And so as he died on the cross for our sins, he paid the price for our sins, but then his perfect sinless life of fulfilling the Ten Commandments is then reckoned to or imputed to our account so as if we've kept the Ten Commandments. So when we talk about in Christian terminology, biblical terminology, positional righteousness, like we have positional righteousness, that positional righteousness is based upon Jesus Christ fulfilling these Ten Commandments perfectly. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. And for all the people that thought at his time that they fulfilled these things outwardly, the Sermon on the Mount revealed to them who they really were inwardly. So when you think about positional righteousness, and I I talk about this where I say, we're not hoping for victory, we're coming from victory. We are coming from victory in the call of God on our life, the things he wants to do in in personal character in our life, his calling to work through our life to bless others and serve others for the kingdom. That's all positional righteousness. It's based upon Jesus Christ fulfilling this passage. Not only is he the mediator of a better covenant, he fulfills this one. He fulfilled this perfectly. Now, our practical righteousness can go up and down, right? We can have the good day, the bad day, the good week, the bad week. Romans 7, Paul talks about those things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. And what human being that's born of the Spirit doesn't read Romans 7 and feel like they know what that, that that's feeling's like? Most of us didn't wake up today saying, oh, I can't wait to do something evil. Or I can't wait to offend somebody or say the wrong thing to my spouse. 
I can't wait to have a bad attitude on the road. I can't wait to get frustrated with something later on. But the human experience throws those things at us. And so that practical righteousness goes up and down. But the positional righteousness is based upon Jesus fulfilling this. But we're told in the Old Testament that in the New Covenant that God will not write the law on the stone tablets, which was the last verse we read here, but on our hearts. So God's law is written on our hearts. The Ten Commandments is in our heart. Now, we are told, and by the Spirit we can fulfill these things, not for our justification, but reflecting that we have been saved. It's kind of like the book of James says, we, we show our faith by our works, but it's not works of self-righteousness justifying us. It's works of faith, like Rahab and Abraham as examples in James 2, being carried out because we are justified. Because we have a positional righteousness because of Christ fulfilling these things, we have acts of obedience that are good acts, actions that reflect God's law in a good way, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God working through us. So we do do the right things. We do honor our parents. We do honor the Lord. We don't lie. We don't lust. We do these things. We let God work with us, work through those things and correct those things that we become more of who we're meant to be as a woman or a man moving toward eternity. So, yes, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, but we don't cast it aside because we're saved by grace. We, as we abide in Christ, since Christ fulfilled this and is the epitome of fullness of the law fulfilled, he's going to work these things in our life, not for justification, but for glorification of him to the world around us. This is biblical Christianity. And... Jesus was asked before he went to the cross during that holy week, what, are the great, what is the greatest commandment? And he did say is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So he took these 10 and made them two. To love vertically the Lord and to love horizontally people. Then later on, when Paul was being led by the Holy Spirit writing Romans, he tells us that all the law of God, particularly the Ten Commandments, because he quotes the Ten Commandments right after that, is fulfilled in this, that you love God and you love your neighbor. So if we're loving our neighbor and God's love is working in us, we're going to fulfill the Ten Commandments. So we don't wake up like, oh, I'm going to be really good, I'm going to do all the right things, I'm going to fulfill the Ten Commandments. It's more like I'm abiding in Christ, and as I'm abiding in Christ... Love is going to come from my life, and the love of God that's poured out in our hearts, Romans 5, is going to reflect these things on how I handle myself in situations that test me. For the flesh and the spirit, they war against each other, we're told in Galatians, but we yield to the spirit, and the spirit wants to reign supreme. Now, this is the life we're meant to live. And as we look at these Ten Commandments, before we move on from them, because we don't get them that often this way, just a review of them is in their context is you have the first three go straight up vertical with the Lord, right? So no other gods before the Lord, no images or idolatry, ideas of concepts of the Lord. We talked about that recently, just a few weeks ago. And do not use the Lord's name in vain to revere his name. His name, he's holy and his name is to be holy. So as the Holy Spirit's working in our life, He's going to establish the supremacy of Christ in our life. He's going to establish that we're not building idols against the Lord or competing with the Lord. 
And all those idols in the Old Testament, you know, they represented different things of there are gods in people's minds, but we're told in the New Testament that demons are behind them. So for all the evil acts that people can think and do, there's actually demonic entities that would be associated with that. And that's what the Bible says. So we're not to, really an application for us to be that we're not letting things come in that steal the devotion, the first love toward Christ in our life, these various pursuits of the human flesh and sinful nature that are against the Lord. Just recently reading the story of Elijah taking on the prophets of Baal and the Ashtoreths. Those are all, those gods are like gods of war and gods of lust and Molech and offering up the infants and all that stuff. Like, we can't let things come in to our mind, material things or evil spiritual things contrary to the Lord. That's why Paul wrote the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians and he said, what fellowship is Christ with the table of demons? It's It's Christ. As Billy Graham used to say, Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so these first three commandments deal with that truly that God has supremacy. We're made by Christ and for Christ. In him our lives consist. We're made to know the Lord. We're made and created to know his love. Isn't that an amazing thought? That before he says, no other gods, no images of me, and do not use my name in vain, do you realize that we are created to know his love. God is love. And by this they'll know we're Christians by our love. The supreme purpose of our existence, existence is to know his love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his son. And that's the definition of love. And while we're yet enemies, Christ died for us. By this we know love. Adam and Eve had a chance to know God's love before they fell to know that love vertically and to show that love horizontally with each other. We don't know how long they went on like that, but they did have it before they lost it. See, for an unregenerated person, a person not born of the Spirit, a person at war with God, when you say, well, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's repulsive to them because they don't know the Lord. They don't know God's character. They don't know his love. They don't know what he, how good he is. That's why David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is love. God is love, and we are created to know his love. That's the beginning. But in knowing his love, then we're created to reciprocate or return that love. Thus, it's a very reasonable response in our created being, in our very DNA of being a human being, a woman or a man, is to cognitively understand that God made everything, Romans 1, and that God made us to know his love. He didn't make us to know his wrath, although Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath, but God made us to know his love. God is light, and him is no darkness. God made you and I to know his love. And thus it is very reasonable as the Spirit draws us to the Lord, as we respond to Christ and the gospel message, that it's natural to love the Lord back. Our full experience as a human being is to repent of our sins, to be saved by grace, and to love God back. That is our purpose of existence. Anyone that lives a life, which most people do, devoid of really knowing God's love or reciprocating returning God's love, they've never lived. That's the tragedy of the human experience. But that's the beauty and the glory of this gathering tonight as the church. That we come here and we sing these songs because we love God. 
And God loves us first. And then this is life. When we know his love and we return that love, we're fulfilling those three commandments that way because we're not going to use the Lord's name in vain. When you're in love with somebody, you would never speak ill of them. You wouldn't curse their name or whatever. When you see two people and they're really, you know, like in love, they hallow the name of each other. And how much more so God in the relationship. That's why he says relationship and not religion. Religion will cause people to curse. How many people go to church and say like, oh, I go to church, I'm a Christian, and they use the Lord's name in vain all the time? They don't really know God's love. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's, that's what I'm suggesting to us. They haven't been touched by God's love. You can be so close, but the distance from the brain to the heart is about a foot, and that distance is everything for eternity. You don't love with your brain. Ultimately, you love with your heart. When, you're, when you got your heart broken, you didn't get your head broken. You don't intellectually feel heartache over love. You feel it in your heart. And that's being born again. We must be born again. Jesus didn't die on the cross for an intellectual ascent. He died on the cross. That's why Paul said, love puffs up, but what? Love builds up. It's always about love. I Man, go back to Charlottesville in, in fifth, fourth and fifth grade, they're at catechism, and all those college students, it was during the Jesus movement, and the Catholic Church was very much affected by that in a university town like Charlottesville, Virginia, with the University of Virginia. And all those college students were there, and they taught catechism to us. They'd take us, we'd go to uh, St. James Parish, but then the the college-age students, they would take the catechism kids, and we actually wouldn't have to go to Mass, and we'd go across the street in these houses, and they taught Bible studies. But I remember them singing. We had Good News for Modern Man Bible with the stick figures, you know? But I always remember them singing songs, and they'd always sing that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. I always remember that. Like, what a wonderful memory. I just shared on Saturday how you usually hear the gospel 30 times before you get saved. And I talked about how many times we heard the gospel from somebody or God touched our life in a certain way to show himself to us. Man, like singing songs about loving God, that, that impacted my life. Because I always remember, like early on when, I, when we went to church in Cleveland at St. Anne's, from, down the street from my grandparents' house, it was a big, huge Calvary, excuse me, big, huge Catholic church. And I actually posted an Instagram about a year ago when I went back to Cleveland for my mom's memorial. And it was very in- intimidating for a kindergarten or first grade kid. And then when we lived on base in Quantico and we went to the base chapel, well, they had Protestant services there and Catholic services there. And it was very religious to me. But I always remember when we got to Charlottesville and those college students took us to those houses and they taught us gospel stories and we sang songs on the Lord Christians by our love. That's what happens. Like that's, that's what's meant to happen. It's not to be a dry Orthodox religion where knowledge puffs up. It's about where love builds up. And the first three commandments declare that. Because you, if you're doing that religiously, you're, you're never, you're never going to be, you're going to be miserable. You're going to go to church, you're going to do religion, you're going to be miserable. But if you've been born again and it's in your heart, then it's, that's everything. You just naturally do it. Because you love the Lord because he first loved you. Now, commandment number four, the Sabbath, is unique in that it clearly is identified with the nation of Israel and that covenant they had for 1,500 years. The early church never practiced the Sabbath on Saturday. 
We know that after Christ rose from the grave on a Sunday, it was called the Lord's Day. And the church from that time on, from the day of Pentecost on, they always got together collectively on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, which for them on their calendar was, of course, Sunday. And that explains why the church historically has met on Sundays. Now, being a Saturday night church for almost 18 years, people ask me, it's like, there's a reason you meet on Saturday? I'm like, well, yeah, it's the night that's available at Shoreline. <laughs> you know, it's, a good, it's a good reason. It's a good gig. You know, it's worked pretty well for almost two decades. Uh, it's not a religious reason. It's just it, it works out well. Um, but there are obviously people that are very adamant about Saturday only, right? Like Messianic Jews are big on Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists are really big on Saturday. But it can be well pointed out that you just don't have the New Testament support for that. You just don't. So if people feel that way and don't force it on someone else who prefers, who feels the Lord's Day is the day, I'm okay with that. But if they feel that that's doctrine, it's Jesus plus church on Saturday, I have a major problem with that because that's adding to the gospel. And that's not the gospel. That's Judaizers that they confronted there in the book of Acts. That's a problem. So it's not Jesus plus church on Saturday. It's just Jesus. And the principle of the Sabbath really pointed to Jesus because Jesus is our Sabbath rest because he died for us. He gives us the rest. That's why he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. So he's rest from the weight of the law and trying to self-justify by the law. He's rest. and he's Because, again, he fulfilled the law, and he gives that to our account through positional righteousness when we put our faith and trust in him. But, of course, the Sabbath day is a good idea, and it's always good to take one day in seven off, because actually we know the one day in seven with the Lord himself supersedes what? The law. It's before the law. It's like the tithe. The tithe is before the law. So there's definitely a principle there. But we're not justified or less justified by going to church on Saturday or not going to church on Saturday. And that's important to teach in the context of this passage. And by the way, it's of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's not reaffirmed. Like I said, it's not reaffirmed in the New Testament. The other ones are, and again, history shows us the church met on the first day of the week. So, in fact, Paul said, one person esteems one day, another esteems another. Let each be convinced in their own mind. That's the law of liberty. And so we do Tuesday and Saturday, and it works for us. It's a good fit. Now, then the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. This is a hybrid commandment because the first four are vertical, but now this one is sort of vertical but kind of horizontal because the parents represent the authority over it, like authority, God's order of authority over us, but then it's horizontal because it's relation to humans. We all know if you live long enough, honor your father and mother looks this way when you're a toddler. It looks like that in your elementary years. It looks like this in your teen years. It looks like that as you become your own adult person. And it looks like this when you get older and older. And for me, my dad's 90 I'm 60, it looks a lot different at 90 and 60 than it did at 30 and newborn, or 40 and 10, or 50 and 20. That's just the way it works. So it's, it's a relationship, it's an earthly relationship, but it's the family unit. And when we get to Deuteronomy, uh, right around the corner, we'll talk more about the family unit and how that works, but we're called to honor our father and mother, and for many of you, your parents have already passed away. Some of you have parents that were fantastic with you, and some were less than fantastic. I've lost, you know, my, my wife and I have lost two parents in the last year and a quarter, and that's been a lot. And I almost lost my dad, and that's a lot. And being, being with my dad, and he does have his fuzzy days, and he's not the same as he used to be, you know? 
Like my dad's not the same as he used to be. And you with elderly parents that are in their 80s or 90s, you know, like there's good days and bad days. And, you know, like, but he's still my dad. He's still my dad. And even if he didn't know who I was, because I know some people whose parents the last few years didn't even know who they were, their children were, which would be really sad. By the way, one of the things my mom said to me before she passed away, once a year she walked me through her memorial and all of her trust and all that stuff. It was like a Catholic thing or something, I don't know, but... All right, Joe, we're going to lunch and talking about when I die. Can't wait, Mom. <laughs> but um, what she said is that the hardest day of her life, because she's talking about my father, so when I'm gone, because I'm going to go before your father, and there'll be a day maybe when you go to see your father and he's not going to know who you are. And she goes, I want you to be prepared for that day. Because she said the hardest day of my life was the day, the last day I saw my father, and I went to see him and he didn't know who I was. She goes, Joe, that was the hardest day of my life. And you might face that day with your father. And I want you to know that that day could happen. And when it does happen, here's how you go from there. You know, my mom shared something with me. She'd never shared her entire life. It was the last time we've had that conversation. I was like, wow, I never, I, I just, I never knew. I just never knew. I think how painful it would be, like, think around this room right now, and some of you already know what this is like. But if the last time you saw your father or your mother, they didn't know it was you. My mom's like, you need to be prepared for that so you're not caught off guard. And I know many people, again, in this church that have gone through that and even in it right now. And yet you still honor your father and your mother. So if I've prepared myself for a couple of years that when that day comes, if and when it comes, that my dad no longer knows me. Because my mom says I'm the last person he's going to remember. Because I'm kind of the point. I'm the compass for his life right now with everything that I'm just going to, you know, continue to love him like I would, right? What, you're not going to not love him, right? You're going to love him unconditionally. be a whole other level of love and fulfilling honor your father and your mother. That's what it's going to be. That's what I foresee. A whole other level of being the servant of all is greatest in the kingdom. So tonight on this fifth commandment, honor your father and mother might look like a certain way for you, it's a certain way for me. God help us to be faithful. And we, like I talked about Saturday, we can't go back and undo anything from the past, right? <laughs> if you're a naughty boy or a naughty girl and you cause great grief to your parents, you can't change that. But you can be a better version of a daughter or a son this day going forward. That's what we do have today. And that's what I try and focus on. Yeah. Honor your father and your mother. Now, the back five are all horizontal. And obviously, you shall not murder. Okay, so that's premeditated taking someone's life. It's not manslaughter because they had the villages for the manslayer, right? There's a distinction. And, of course, the Bible also makes a distinction in uh, taking life in time of war and taking life in time of peace. But this is murder. This is like premeditated first or second degree murder. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. All this re reflects taking taking a life, taking someone else's spouse, their husband or their wife or whatever. You shall not steal. That's taking. You shall not bear false witness. That's taking the truth and making it a lie. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his possessions. We need to be content. So we need to respect other people and we need to work through hatred and anger and resentment and we need to find forgiveness. Those great equities, purity, humility, and forgiveness. Those are great equities.
Whenever I try and understand the stock market and how stocks work and go up and down, it's like, oh, you know, like stop, sell, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, it's bugger all. It's too late to understand this stuff. But I still find it interesting. One thing I can tell you, no matter what's going on in your bank account, if we're growing in humility, if we're growing in purity, and we're growing in forgiveness, our wealth is going up for time and eternity. Got to just forgive, respect others in their space, respect God's blessing on their life, and just be content with what God's given us. Just be content. Be content in our marriages. Be content in our standing. Don't measure what's happening in our life by someone else's because that's where covetousness comes in. You know, it says not to covet their ox or donkey or anything like that. I was talking with Sam a few weeks ago, like, we don't have ox and donkeys. We have, you know, 401ks. <laughs> you know, we have investment properties. That's, those are ox and donkeys in the Old Testament. That's wealth. Basically saying don't covet someone else's wealth. Just look to the Lord and trust in the Lord. And won't we be blessed if this is what we do? Like if we apply the Ten Commandments this way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with it written on our hearts, tablets of our hearts, the tenderness of heart, by the Holy Spirit, not with the finger of God on a stone. I don't want my heart to be the stone, right? You don't want your heart to be the stone. I can promise us this. To the degree that we look to Christ, abide in Christ, and use the Holy Spirit, the positive of these ten things are going to be working in our life in a good way. To our benefit and to the benefit of others. Now we read on with the last segment of the text tonight. Verse 23. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes, all your elders, of course the 12 tribes of Israel, and you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we've heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear that all the Lord God may say and tell us all the Lord God says to you and we will hear and do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words which you spoke to me. The Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And go say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I'll speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I'm giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So this is the result of all that was happening at Mount Sinai. And this is a kind of a wrap-up thought for this part of Moses' teaching in the Pentateuch, that this idea that may be well with you. In fact, this phrase, it goes back to commandment number five. Back in verse 16, it said that, you know, that if you honor your father and mother, that your days may be long, that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you, that it may be well with you. Then again in verse 29, it says, oh, that you had such a heart in them, Excuse me. And in verse 29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And then here, this last verse, that you may live 
that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you go to possess. So notice this consistency of verse 16, 29, and this last verse, verse 33, is that, number one, it would be well with you, that the days would be long and there would be good things. And it's be well with you in the land which the Lord has given you. And then that it says in the last verse, 33, the land that you shall, go, that you shall possess. So the idea is that God's given them the land. He's blessing them. He's given them the land. And he's given the statutes to the benefit of them and to their children. So two of the three verses mention the parents above, honor your father and mother. But then the second time it says at verse 29, that be well with you, that it might be well with you and your children. So the first be well with you is because you're taking care of the parents and you're honoring the father and the mother. The second be well with you is that it goes well with your children because you're making the right decisions. So it's good. It's well with you because it's good upward and it's good with you because it's good downward because it's blessing your children because downward's good. Then the last one is it's in the land, that it's in the land. But the first one said with the fifth commandment, that it's in the land as well. So if you think about this principle of our life, it's just a reminder to us, the relationships are really important. And honoring your father and mother is really important because it's well with you. And when we obey the Lord, it becomes well with our children as well as us. And then in the end, that as we just do what's right and we walk in always the Lord, it is well with us. So three times there's this idea of wellness that it's well with you. There's a blessing in obedience, and it's affirmed a fourth time because if we go forward to Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, children, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you as you dwell in the land. So the New Testament affirms this concept that when we're obedient and we're doing the right things with our parents, that it's well with us and the family structure, and we're blessed. So it's just a reminder that if we have a healthy heart, we're going to have a healthy home, and we're going to have a healthy life. So much where people are not well physically, mentally, emotionally, can be attributed to not being well with the Lord spiritually, for sure. We understand that. And so it's just a good reminder that, like, if the soul is well, as it says, it is well with my soul, there's wellness with the soul and the relationship with God, because of obedience to his word, there's going to be wellness in the relationships. There's going to be a blessing because we're, we're, we're right with the relationships above us of our parents. We're right with the relationships around us in our marriages. And it brings blessing to the children underneath us because it just flows down. It, it, it's a blessing passed on. Our wellness of soul, in the context of this chapter, brings blessings to our children. And we talked about this Saturday as well. So not only are we blessed to have our soul in a good place with the Lord, with obedience and doing the right things and all the stuff God has, but it just blesses the people coming after us in our own home. And that's what we want. You know, you can't make adult children walk with the Lord. We all understand that, right? Yeah. I saw some random thing like, should someone be disqualified from the ministry because their adult kids don't walk with the Lord? I was like, what kind of silly question is that? We all have a volitional will. We all make choices. Like, you can't, we all have, the tree of, the tree of life is a choice. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is a choice. And I know many people whose adult children don't walk with the Lord or frustrate them, and we understand that. But I'm going to suggest to all of us that as we just keep our soul well with the Lord, 
and keep our soul well with which is above us, that we're going to bring a blessing to that which is beneath us. That is, we are well in our soul. That blessing goes to our children, young or old, and it's there. So it's a, it's a covering and a hedge, whether they acknowledge it, accept it, or believe it or not. It's in play. And so we can say it is well with my soul because it is well. And I, wanna, I want to walk in the blessings. I want to serve my father who's alone is left of the parents above us. And I want to bless my children who are coming behind me and will live on this planet, hopefully long after I'm gone. And I want to bless everyone around me. It is well with our soul. It may be well with you and prolong your days. If you're going to live a long time, don't you want to live it with a healthy soul? Yeah. So prolong your days when we walk in all the ways of the Lord.